0: Good morning, y'all. Good to be here. It's a full Sunday, and full in a couple different ways. We got a lot of people here, and we also have a lot of things that are happening, a lot of things that's going on. But uh, a couple things I want to mention here today. John, who's just up here, is having surgery tomorrow. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to just put it out there let the cat out of the bag. So if you would keep John in, in prayer, he has a surgery that's going to be happening tomorrow. And um, if, somebody, if some of you feel called to do so, Um, After the service, maybe after our meeting or something, I'd like to gather around him and and pray for him. Also, something else that's happening is this coming Saturday, I mentioned that Mark Creech had passed away last week, and um, they're going to have a celebration um, event for him at Venetian Gardens at the uh, community center there. It's going to be this coming Saturday, August 26th, from 11 to 1, and and it's going to be kind of a stop in, sort of just visit with the family. Uh, time of celebration and, and talking about Mark and his life in Christ. So I just wanted to announce that for you from the family. That's going to be happening. And it'll also go out on the blast, but that's Saturday, this coming Saturday. Well, today we're looking at chapter 22 of Luke. And I got to tell you, I got 71 verses to get through, right? And I'm going to do the best I can. But here's the flow of the events that take place In chapter 22, this is the beginning of the passion, which means the suffering of Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. The crucifixion is next week. But it starts, this chapter starts with the beginnings of Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus to the chief priests. Then we shift over to preparing for the Passover, which becomes the Last Supper, which is the Lord's Supper. And we will celebrate that together today, actually in the middle of the message. And then we'll come back to the message. Jesus then teaches the disciples a lesson on what it means to be great in his eyes, you know, by his opinion and his estimation, what it means to be great. He predicts Peter's denial, and he prays in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Peter denies Jesus three times. And finally, Jesus is mocked and beaten before he is questioned by the chief priests and the high council in Jerusalem. And so we're going to try and get through today. You ready? Hang on. Hang on. Here we go. Let's read. I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 6. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him, that is Jesus, to death. For they were afraid of the people. Remember that. We're coming back to that. And Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, the disciples. And he went away and discussed with the chief priest, Judas did, and the officers about how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money in exchange. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray them apart from the crowd. Apart from the crowd. So the Passover is approaching, right? The chief priests, plural, there's several. The scribes are seeking how they might put Jesus to death. And what's the hang up? What's the hold up? Why haven't they done it by now? They've been wanting to do it. What's the problem? It's the people. The people are the problem. Jesus is in the temple every day surrounded by people who are hanging on his every word. The priests, the high priests and all of them, they're afraid of the people and what they might do if they try to arrest Jesus in the temple. So verses 3 4, 5, and 6, tells us that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. He starts thinking, right? Judas initiates a discussion with the priests and the officers about how he might betray Jesus. And they're happy and agree to a sum of money. Verse 6 told us that Judas began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So Judas is thinking, Okay, what's a good time? What's a good place? Jesus is going to be alone. All of this is going through his mind. That's the key for Judas and his co-conspirators. Away from the crowd because they're afraid of the people. And we can almost figure out what Judas is thinking. Because right before, the, right before this, in the last two verses of the chapter last week, it said Jesus' pattern was to teach the people in the temple what? All day, all right? But at night, he would retreat to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside the city wall every night, away from the crowds. You come down from the temple platform, and you would come down and go to the back wall, and there was the the, um, golden gate. They would go out the golden gate at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and then go up the Mount of Olives. And that's where they would stay, and you could actually see the temple. It's about the same elevation. You could see it from the top of the Mount of Olives. So that becomes Judas's plan. That's his strategy: is to catch him away from the crowd at night. Okay. So the next seven verses, something happens that's very similar, very similar to the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Do you remember the story about the colt, Lee? I know you do, right? Because we joked about the blue Mustang. You remember the story about the colt and uh, the colt. And he sends two disciples, and he says there's going to be a colt tied up. Untie it bring it to me. If somebody gives you a problem, just tell them the Lord has need of it. And they do, and he does, and they take it, and Jesus rides the colt into Jerusalem. But here, okay, something similar happens. In these verses, Jesus sends Peter and John, particularly them, not just two disciples, Peter and John, to prepare the Passover meal. And that kind of thing happens again, the colt thing, you know. Happens again, but this time it's about celebrating the Passover and finding the upper room. But again, Luke records this particular story for a reason, a very important reason. It communicates that all of what is happening, okay, even Jesus coming into Jerusalem, all of what is happening is part of a preconceived providential plan. It's God's plan. Even Judas is a part of God's plan. That's the message here. It's predetermined by God. So listen for that as I read 7 through 13. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Listen, here it goes. This is like the cult thing. He says, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. It's furnished and prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he, Jesus, had told them. And they prepared the Passover. They prepared the Passover. You see what I mean? It was meant to be, right? It was all part of God's predetermined plan. Luke wants to see, um, Luke wants us to see that. He wants us to see that in the Last Supper. And he wants to see that in the Passover. So I'm going to read and comment on verses 14 through 23, okay? And we will celebrate the Lord's Supper right here in the middle of the message. This is the part about the Lord's Supper. And after we share in the Lord's Supper, and after we finish communion, we're going to come back together, and then I'm going to finish the rest of the 71 verses, okay? That's what we're going to do. But listen now as I read and comment on verses 14 through 23. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table. You remember it was furnished. table was already in there. And the apostles with him in the upper room. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He knows what's going to happen. And who is he going to spend time with in his last hours? The disciples, his favorite people. For I say to you, I shall never again eat of it until the kingdom of God is fulfilled... That's why it's called the Last Supper, because this is his last supper with the disciples before his suffering and before the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's not going to eat or drink until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. It's the Last Supper, and it's Passover. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. That's a Amazing, interesting way of saying that. Listen to what he says. He says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. In other words, it's one of you. His hand's on the table like my hand is on the table. He's here. He's here. the way he says that. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. In other words, this is all part of God's predetermined plan. But then he talks about Judas. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed... In other words, Judas has responsibility in this. He's not innocent in this. He bears some responsibility. And they began to discuss amongst themselves, the disciple, which one of them it might be that was going to do this thing. Now, I want to talk a little bit, okay, before we pray, I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus attaches the Lord's Supper to the Passover. That's very intentional. That's very intentional. We know the story of the Passover, right? The Passover is when the people of Israel, the Hebrews, were enslaved by Egypt for like 400 years, and they're crying out to God, and then the Lord hears their voice, and he sends a deliverer. Who is that? Moses. Moses. And he comes, and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, no way. Not happening. I need these slaves to build my stuff. Okay? So Moses, through God, through Moses, sends 10 plagues. I won't go through all of them. Ten plagues. Every plague that comes, it's supposed to soften Pharaoh's heart, but it doesn't. It hardens his heart. And he, he's just all the more determined not to let them go. So the last plague is the plague of what? Do you remember? Death. Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. And that's where God institutes, through Moses, the Passover meal. That's the Passover meal. And he says this. He said the angel of death is going to come over it's going to take the firstborn of all Egypt. Pharaoh, from Pharaoh's family all the way down through all the people, even their livestock, the firstborn cattle, the firstborn sheep, all of those things. But for the Hebrew people, he says this is what you do. You sacrifice a lamb, you, you eat the lamb and some bitter herbs, you celebrate this Passover meal, but you take some of the blood of the lamb and you paint it on your doorposts, on your doorpost and on your lintel. The Passover lamb. You paint it on there. And then that night, what happened is the angel of death came in and all of the firstborn of Egypt died. It says the wailing was unlike ever before in all of the sadness from Pharaoh all the way down. But when the angel of death came over, he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentil and passed over them. You see, death passed over them. Jesus put the Lord's Supper, the last supper, right with Passover for a couple of reasons. Okay, the first one is, The Passover at Jesus' time had been been celebrated for 1,500 years. So he put it with the Passover and told his disciples, celebrate this Passover and remember me and what I've done for you. So that he would be remembered, like the Passover, at least once a year. And there's some churches that still do the Lord's Supper just once a year. Some churches do it every single week. But he says, "I, I want you to do this year after year and remember me and what I have done for you. The second thing... Is because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. And the blood of the Lamb, when we become Christians, the blood of the Lamb, we are marked by him. Because of his blood, we're forgiven for our sins, but we are also saved from death. He's delivering. Jesus is the deliverer, not Moses. And we are saved from sin and death. You see, death passes over us. Death passes over us. That's why Jesus very intentionally put the Lord's Supper, which was his last supper with the disciples, together for those reasons. So knowing that, thinking about that, that's what we're going to celebrate today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you're here. You've said wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are in our midst. You promised you are with us always. And Lord, we are here gathered today specifically celebrating your supper that you connected with Passover. You are our Passover lamb. You are the one who saves us. And today we remember, we remember your suffering that we're going to talk about this week and next week. We remember the crown of thorns. We remember the scourging. We remember the nails. We remember the cross. And we remember the spear that pierced your side, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bless these elements, this ordinary bread and juice, that they might be for us, by faith, a symbol and a remembrance of what you have done for us. That your body was broken for us. And that your blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. So that we might have eternal life with you. For it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So after the supper, during the last supper, the 12 disciples had a dispute about which one of them is the greatest. This is a very humble bunch of guys, right? The 12, they're arguing about which one of them is the best Which reminds me of Muhammad Ali. You remember George Foreman? I'm the greatest. That's what they were doing. That's what they were arguing about. And Jesus teaches them a short but significant lesson on what he thinks about greatness. And what he wants them to know. He wants to be sure they know about greatness before his crucifixion. Before his crucifixion. This is the Last Supper. But this also, when you think about it in Luke, is the last lesson that Jesus teaches To the disciples. I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. 24 through 30. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them that the kings of the Gentiles lord over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. In other words, we as Christians... They, as disciples, were not to be that way. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, like a child, and the leader to become a servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? You think about restaurants, well, certainly it's the one who reclines at the table. No, no. Jesus said, it is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus just served them the Passover meal. The one who is the servant will be the greatest, right, in the kingdom of heaven. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. In other words, they've spent all three years together through all the things they've been through. They're special to Jesus. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom... I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In other words, you will be servants, but you will be great in the kingdom of God. Next, Jesus turns his attention to Simon, who he later names Peter. turns his attention to him, and he warns him, Satan's out to get you. Satan's out to get you. Satan is out to test you. In his words, Jesus says, he wants to sift you like wheat. Find your faults and your weaknesses. So Peter, with great bravado, reaffirms his loyalty and bravery and his willingness to go to prison and even die for Jesus. He he says it to him right there, the Last Supper. But Jesus tells him, he says this. He says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times That you even know me. Ouch. What a blow to Peter's ego. Listen for that as I read verses 31 through 34. It says, Simon. Then he says it again. Calls him Simon. Make sure he has his attention. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Remember that. And you, once you have turned again, in other words, once you get your head back together, strengthen your brothers. The other disciples are going to need you. You need to be strong for them, Peter. That's what he's saying. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. Three times that you know me. Then Jesus goes on with a warning about what it's going to be like after he's gone, after his suffering. And basically he tells them, you're going to need a lot of stuff and you're going to need a sword. You're going to need a sword. Listen to verses 35 through 38. He says, and he said to them, when I sent you out without money, belt, bag, or sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, we didn't. You remember when he sent them out? Actually two times in the Gospel of Luke on a test run to see how they did and he said don't take anything with you you're going to be taken care of they said no lord nothing we had everything and he said to them but now now it's going to be different whoever has a money belt is to take it along likewise also a bag and whoever has no sword you need to sell your coat and buy a sword you need to you need to buy a sword For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes the Old Testament. He who was numbered with transgressors and he who was numbered with transgressors because he's going to be crucified between two thieves. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. It's going to be fulfilled very soon. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. What did Jesus say? It is enough. You got two swords? It's enough enough. So then the last supper is over. It's over, and they leave the upper room. And they head to the Mount of Olives, out through the Golden Gate, and up in the Mount of Olives, where their camp is. They're going to their camp because they've been staying there all week in the Garden of Gethsemane, or right near the Garden of Gethsemane. And guess who knows that? Judas. Judas knows exactly where they've been staying. And it is there that Jesus withdraws, it says about a stone's throw, away to pray. But this is a prayer like no other prayer that he's ever prayed in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus here is in agony. Because he knows what's about to happen. He knows about the scourging and the whipping. He knows about the thorns and the nails and the cross and the spear. He knows what's coming. And he knows it's going to hurt. And he knows he's going to die. He knows this going in. So, all of this is going through his mind and emotions like a hot knife through butter. He's in agony because he doesn't want to do it. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. But the angels are strengthening him. The disciples are no help, they're asleep. But the angels are strengthening him. But listen to verses 39 through 46. 39 through 46. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, right, all week long to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And he arrived at the place, and he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Remember that. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In other words, Lord, if there's Any other way we can do this? If there's any way we can avoid this and I don't have to go through this? Because it's going to be terrible. If there's any other way we can do this, Lord, take this cup away from me. But then he says this, yet not my will, Lord, but yours be done. He says, I'll do whatever. I'll do it. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. His emotional and spiritual being was manifesting itself physically, sweating like drops of blood. He's in agony. When he arose, when he rose from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says, why are you sleeping? He says, get up and pray. I find it interesting here. I find it interesting that when he says get up and pray, he wasn't talking about praying for him and all that he was about to go through. Not at all. He wanted them to pray for themselves that they would not enter into temptation. And I think what he means by temptation is that they would not be tempted to lose heart, to lose hope. Because they were going to watch him die. They were going to watch him die. He didn't want them to lose faith in God and faith in him. So pray for yourselves that you won't be tempted. Judas Iscariot is next in his final act of betrayal, which would become the most famous betrayal ever because of the person who is betrayed. Because who is it? It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. It's the promised Messiah. So listen as he betrays the Son of Man with a kiss Verse 47, starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. So they're on the Mount of Olives, okay? And there's olive trees everywhere. Um, Been there, the high elevation, all the way down. It goes way up. And they're camping there. So here comes a crowd in the middle of the night. They probably had torches. I don't know, it doesn't say. And then it says, and the one called Judas, one of the 12 was preceding them. He's leading the band. He's leading this band of people to arrest Jesus. And he approached Jesus to kiss him, because that was the signal, right? It was dark. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And I think his attitude was probably, really? After all we've been through, with a kiss? That's extra sting. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them took out the sword and he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ears. Lucky he didn't cut off his head, swinging that sword. And it was probably Peter, we don't know. Probably was. But Jesus answered and said, stop. He said, no more of this. And said, Lord, put your swords away. And he touched his ear and healed the servant's ear. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple... And to the elders who had come against him, this is what he says. He says, have you come out with swords and clubs as if you're coming after a robber, against a robber? He says, me? Why would you come with clubs and swords? And then he goes on. He says, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. In other words, you didn't put a finger on me. You didn't try and arrest me in the temple. You've been with me every day. And you come out at night with clubs and swords? But then he says this. This is very intense. He says, but this hour, he says this to them, this hour and the power of darkness is yours. This hour and the power of darkness is yours. So Jesus' response to the betrayal is disappointment, yes. But he's calm and he's compassionate. He's merciful. He heals the servant's ear. He doesn't retaliate. He says, put your swords away. But he does let the chief priests and the elders and the scribes know that he knows what they're all about. And what they're all about is quiet deception and darkness. They came under cover of darkness. And he says, this hour and the power of darkness are yours. So there's a double meaning there. They're coming under the cover of darkness. The people aren't there, so they can arrest him. But also the power of darkness, which is that Satan entered into Judas and that they were a part of evil. This hour and the power of darkness are yours. Verse 54 says, And having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. Oh, Peter. Peter's following. So Peter's doing his best to keep his promise to Jesus, the promise he just made. Verse 33, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. I'll die with you. That's what he's saying. You see, Peter loves Jesus, but Peter, he's afraid, he's scared, and he doesn't know what to do. It was probably him with the sword, but the Lord said, "Put it away." So, put it away. What am I supposed to do? What are they going to do with my Lord? He's scared, he's afraid. So, the very things Jesus said Peter would do, Peter did. He denied Jesus. He denied being one of the disciples. And he denied, knowing, even even any knowledge of him, he denied him. Peter denied him not once, but three times. Three times. Three different times. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. 54 through 62. It says, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, it's probably some sort of fire pit out there in the middle of the yard, it gets very cold in Jerusalem, um, very cold, it's cold really quick. They sat down together and Peter was sitting among them at this fire in the courtyard of, of the house where Jesus is in. And the servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and she looked intently at him, the firelight's on his face, right? And she says, this man was with him too. But he denied it, and he said, Woman, I do not know him. I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are the one. You are one of them. And Peter said, Man, he said, I don't know him. I'm not. I'm not him. After about an hour, he had after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean also. You see, Galileans were known to have an accent, a heavy accent. Jesus was from Galilee. He was with him. You ever know anybody from Palatka, Florida? They talk a little bit like this. It's kind the of same kind of thing. He recognized his accent that he was from Galilee. It says, you were with him. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking. And I don't even know what you're talking about. This, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately, immediately while he was still speaking those words, The rooster crowed. The rooster crowed. And listen to this, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter was close enough to the high priest's house that when the rooster crowed, he looked at Jesus, and Jesus turned, and they locked eyes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how Jesus felt and how Peter felt? And Peter remembered the word of the Lord that he told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He went out and wept bitterly. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. They were that close. And Peter remembered what the Lord had said. But why was Peter weeping? Why was he weeping? Well, let's think about that for a minute what was the look that jesus gave peter right what was the look peter got from jesus what was it like well we don't know the text doesn't tell us it doesn't tell us but i don't think it was disappointment i really don't and i don't think it was anger i don't think it was even i told you so i don't think it was we don't know but my opinion is this my opinion is it was a knowing Like maybe when he told him what he was going to do. It was a knowing look that was very telling. I believe it was a knowing look that was telling Peter, Peter, I know you. I know what you just did. And I know how you're feeling about it. But don't lose heart, Peter. Because I still love you. Don't lose heart, Peter. I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. That's what Jesus said earlier, and I think that's what Jesus' eyes said to Peter right then. I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. It was a knowing look that was very telling, and Peter wept bitterly. He was broken. He messed up big time, and he knew it. He knew it. And that was terrible for Jesus, and that was terrible for Peter both ways it was terrible but there's a silver lining here buried in all of this sadness there is a silver lining and it's good news for you it's good news for all of us and it's good news for me it's good news for me and here's what it is look at the great things that God did in and through Peter even after this failure right think about that Look what God did through Peter, even after his denial three times, even after his failure and betrayal. It was betrayal, not as bad as Judas' betrayal, but it was a betrayal. Look at Peter. Peter became a mighty man of God who preached the first message of salvation in Christ on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were baptized that day. That was Peter after what he did. After what he did. So when you mess up, and when you know that you have not been what you think Jesus wants you to be, whatever it is, maybe you feel that you've disappointed him. I feel that I have. Maybe you feel that you've failed him in some ways. Maybe you've even denied him. Maybe even three times. I don't know. But I've got good news for you. Look at Peter. Look what God can do with someone like Peter, who he trusted and let him down. Look what God can do, and think about that with yourself. That's good news. Jesus loves us. He loves us. Next, Jesus is humiliated and mocked. He's beaten by godless men who are responsible for keeping him in custody until the next morning. Verses 63 through 65 says this now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him and they blindfolded him and they were asking him saying prophesy who's the one who hit you and they were saying all kinds of other things against him blaspheming blaspheming then that morning the council assembled Peter had already gone out he's gone And the council was made up of the elders of the people, the chief priests, and the scribes. It's called the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, however you want to pronounce it. They questioned Jesus about who he was. They said, are you the Christ? If you're the Christ, tell us. Are you the son of God? And Jesus doesn't speak in parables anymore. He's not talking in vague generalities. He's not talking poetically. He's straight out. He just tells them. He tells them. Listen to what he says in verses 66, the last verses of this chapter, 66 through 71. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber. They took him from the house to the council chamber, saying, "If you are the Christ, tell us." And he said to them, "If I tell you, you will not believe." And if I ask a question, you won't answer my question. But from now on, and listen to this what he says: "From now on, the Son of Man will, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power." And they all said, are you the son of God? Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. I can't tell you how many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, have, have had this conversation with me. Well, Jesus never says he's the son of God anywhere in the New Testament. Well, there it is. And I show them this passage, and there are other passages in John. They say, are you the son of God? Yes, I am. And they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. So in closing for the message today, and thank you for being patient with me. What is more than amazing to me is that Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. Okay? He knew When when he was praying in the garden, he knew what was going to happen to him. And he was in agony. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. He did what he did for us, and he did it willingly, knowing. He knew, yet he submitted to the end result for our redemption, our salvation, and our eternal life that we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for you. That's what he did for me. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are humbled. We can't imagine a love that great. We can't imagine a love that great. You laid down your life. You gave everything, even knowing what it was going to be like. And you did it for us. Lord, we remember today, we remember your passion, we remember your suffering, and we remember your love for Peter and your love for us. And how even though we are very imperfect like Peter, you call us to follow you and to live for you to be your disciples to be your apostles to the world and help us to do that and when we fail and we may when we fail and when we disappoint you and when we fall lord remind us that you're praying for us that our faith will not fail and that you can use us even as you used peter and we thank you for that For we pray in your name jesus and all god's people said